Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. For over 30 years, Silverado Vineyards has made wine in Napa Valley. While Silverado owns over 400 acres located in five properties throughout the valley, based on the acreage, you might think they produce a massive amount of wine. But instead of volume, winemaker John Emmerich prefers to focus on quality and expression of sight. I visited Silverado and talked with Emmerich about the various properties Silverado owns, how he works with the fruit from each in the cellar, and of course to taste some delicious wines. This episode of The Honest Pour is sponsored in part by Fooditor.com, bringing you the stories of Chicago's chefs, restaurants, and people who make food all over town. Fooditor.com. Hi, welcome to The Honest Pour. I'm John Leonard. Joining me today is John Emmerich, winemaker for Silverado Vineyards. We're here in Napa Valley in the Stags Leap District at the Silverado Winery. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, John. Pleasure to be here. How did you get into winemaking? Right, so um, that's a great. It's a great question, and how much time do we have? <laughs> Give me the short. Uh, Give me the short. Uh, answer. The short version. Okay, so uh, I like many of I think my peers of a certain uh, age uh, probably did not grow up with wine. Uh, if you open the fridge, uh, or uh, looked in, if we we didn't even have a wine. Uh, Storage area. Sure, just in the open, kitchen. There, yeah, right. if you open the fridge, there was probably a bottle of Lancers, Matus, or you know, Blue Nun or Green Carrion or you know, one of that those. big gallon jug of Gallo. Yeah, right. yeah, exactly. My my parents were of the cocktail nation, you know, as opposed to my daughter now, who you know can pick out you know all different wines and, sure. and is a whiz with a corkscrew. Thank God she's over 21. <laughs> but I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I knew I wanted to go to one of the schools in the UC system. Uh, I was not interested in attending UCLA or UC Berkeley. And at the time, basically, the system, the UC system, was trying to get uh, California kids or kids into some of the, the smaller schools like UC Riverside or UC Irvine. And I was petrified of uh, being uh, put in those schools, even though they are very fine schools. Any alumni from there, please, um, I'm not <laughs> disparaging your, your schools. Uh, they're great schools. So I thought that if I picked a interesting or obscure major that was only offered at one university at the U, at, through the UC system, that they would accept me in that university so I was uh, thumbing through the UC Davis catalog and saw fermentation science and honestly uh, who at 17 sure not like to, yeah, we have an uh, interest in fermentation yeah, yeah that, exactly right? <laughs> um, so I applied uh, at Davis and in fermentation science and I got accepted Wow. So not ever really thinking that, you know, this would be something that I would continue to do because uh, it's, it's not unheard of uh, for students to change their majors sure. in college. And then, you know, sort of uh, serendipity took over a little bit. And the, my freshman year in the dorm, a uh, gentleman across the hall from me had a very small family winery in the Lodi area. We became very good friends and I would go out there and help him a little bit. And... One time we brought grapes back from the farm and in those 55 gallon um, garbage cans we made um, some pretty awful wine. But, uh, <laughs> and I just thought this was really pretty cool. 
and I, I just never left. And again, through, through good fortune and uh, having some good mentors, um, I've been able to have a very wonderful career. Where were you before you came to Silverado? Sure. So um, I took an extended um, period to get through school. Uh, I did a couple internships. I did an internship in France in the Cognac region, and I missed um, the fall. So I missed a couple classes that I needed to graduate. Next year, I did an a internship in a very interesting small winery in, in Half Moon Bay. Uh, which doesn't exist anymore, but really kind of cutting edge for the time. Again, in fall, missing some classes. So I graduated in 1987. Basically, they were saying, you need to get out of school. Yeah, time to go, buddy. Yeah, it's time to go. So at the time, again, in 1987, the, the wine world was really different. The landscape sure. was very different. And really, you kind of got out of the wine schools, either Davis or Fresno, and you kind of headed to Napa or Sonoma. If you were like really crazy pioneer, maybe you would go to Santa Barbara or the Foothills or something. Yeah, I mean, those areas just were really starting to develop. So I got an internship uh, at Stagsley Wine Cellars, Lenarski's place, and I'll tell you, it was an amazing, amazing um, adventure. Even though I was there just for harvest, the folks that Warren had hired were some of the brightest people that have gone on to do really great things. People used to call, I think, the University of Warren or something <laughs> because how many great people wow. went through. And then from there, I worked at a concrete winery for about okay. a year and a half, then went over to Sonoma and worked at Sebastiani, and then hmm. um, came here in 1990, February 1990. So this is my yeah. 29th harvest Should with Silverado Vineyards. With Silverado. 29th. And you're only, second, you're only the second winemaker they've ever had, correct? Yeah, in title, sure. Sure, yes. in title. You know, there's been folks that have had the title of, a, you know, assistant winemaker, associate winemaker, you know, there. So, but yes, it's Jack Stewart was the original founding winemaker, and then I got title of winemaker after Jack. Give me a little bit of history of the place. Tell me about Silverado, where it started... Sure, absolutely. So, Silverado Vineyards is family-owned. Uh, we're owned by the Miller family, Ron and Diane Miller. Diane being the daughter of Walt Disney, so people sometimes say, oh, you're the Disney winery, and that is not completely incorrect. It's Disney family, although it really is the Miller family. Sure. And we are not in any way connected to the Disney There's organization. There's nothing Disney-esque about There's the drive up the hill no. here or the gorgeous compass rose you have on no. the front. No, um, it's just the Millers happen to have sure. really, really good taste. Okay, <laughs> good enough. Uh, and so Ron was um, working um, at Disney side by side with Walt. And again, was surrounded by very bright people. And somebody told Ron and Diane that there were some interesting things happening up in the Napa Valley and they should maybe check it out. And that's what they did. So in the mid 70s, they came up and, and started looking at some properties. And in 1976, they bought our first property uh, over in Yauntville, where we grow our Sauvignon Blanc. And uh, that was the start. Two years later, they they went east and jumped across the Napa River and purchased the property 
in Stag's Leap District. That was 1978. And then in 1981, we essentially cut the ribbon to to our winery. We have since grown. We Hmm. now own six vineyards, uh, around 400 acres planted, uh, farmed by um, a farming company that we... Yeah, so I mean, we, we are, you know, we're not a small... I wouldn't consider ourselves, you know, boutique, but we're not huge. We're kind of like we sort of joke. Yeah, you're not making the million bottles. Right. And... We're we're schmedium. Right, okay, fair <laughs> enough. Nice schmedium, right? Yes. But again what what differentiates us I think from a lot of the folks in Napa is we are all estate fruit. You know, of course, there's always a, a little hiccup with that. We we actually do buy about twenty five tons from UC Davis, their research station up in Oakville. Mm-hmm. And we make we make wine for the research station and then we make a little bit for our wine. Oh, so that's the only outside wine that we really um, don't we don't own, but we've been working with them since 2001. Where are the properties that you own? And tell me a little bit about each one of them. Sure. Okay, great. So again, the first property uh, is our Yauntville Miller Ranch. It's in Obviously, Yauntville, a uh, little part south of uh, south of the main city, south of anything that Thomas Keller owns, <laughs> um, and um, we have roughly eighty plus acres there, planted to Sauvignon Blanc and a little bit of Semillon. Great area for for Sauvignon Blanc because I call it the Goldilocks vineyard. It's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right. Mm-hmm. Sauvignon Blanc is a really interesting variety to me because you know, much like any grape, you know, depending on where it's grown, it's really going to reflect that characteristic. And we really prefer one that has good acidity and also you know some melon character. Sure. Uh, we hop over here to the Stag's Leap. It's mostly Cabernet with a little bit of Merlot. The Merlot's going to be in heavier clay area, which is closer towards the river. Let's hop down to our Chardonnay vineyards. We have two Chardonnay vineyards, one on the Napa side of the Carneros. It's called Fire Tree. That goes into um, our Los Carneros bottling. And then the other Carneros Vineyard is actually on the Sonoma side. We call that Weinberg. We make a single vineyard, Weinberg bottling out of that, about 600 cases. And uh, very different sites, as you can imagine. Sure. Carneros stretching, obviously yeah, Sonoma, Sonoma, Napa, Napa Rolling Hills, a little more clay, Sonoma side, a little more sort of sand. Uh, Sonoma gives us more minerality. The Napa side gives us, I would say, to me, sort of more of that typical sort of tropical fruit bruised apple. That more character. lush kind of yeah. Chardonnay. Um, our style tends to be a little leaner than I think your average um, wines coming out of California. We use a lot of uh, stainless steel barrels. So they look like a regular barrel, but they're made from Missouri's finest stainless steel. Come out of a producer out of Springfield, Missouri. And uh, we've been using the stainless barrels uh, since 2005 with that. So it gives us another sort of layer of, of flavor and textural component. Uh, we moved down to our Coombsville 
property. We bought that in 88 and planted it. Well, you've had it for quite a while. Coonsville is kind of like the cool new place to be. Yeah, but you know, it's it's been the cool new place to be since about 1870. So (laughs) it was really one of the earliest places in the valley where people put vines in. Henry Hagen was down there, you know, in the 1870s. And uh, we bought this beautiful property. It's it's about 110 acres okay. down there. That actually has the five main Bordeaux red varieties, Cabernet Merlot, Petit Verdot, Malbec, Cap Franc. Okay. So we do a lot of uh, very special small bottlings of uh, individual varieties down there. Most of those are just in the uh, tasting room and wine club. Sure. But we do a Malbec and a Cab Franc. Uh, sometimes we make us a Petit Verdot. But most notable, which we'll try later, is we make a, um, a Cabernet blend called Geo, and then um, also single vineyard Merlot from Mount George. Cool. And then lastly is our Soda Canyon property, or Soda Creek Ranch, which is up on Soda Canyon. That we grow, you know, that raging popular grape variety, Sangiovese. We make a Rosato. We make a straightforward Sangiovese, and then we make a super Tuscan blend that we call Fantasia. Oh, fun. Which is a Sangiovese Cabernet okay, blend. Sure. And again, um, most of those are pretty small production wine. Should we take some wine? Absolutely. Where are we going to start? Well, let's start with our Carnero Chardonnay. This is the wine that you would see um, if you were sort of out and about. The production on this is usually roughly about 4,500 cases or so. And um, so it's a blend of both the um, Sonoma Carneros side, the Napa Carneros side. This does get some wood component as well. We also use 500 liter barrels as well to kind of, again, I, I, I like to put the wines in oak, but I just don't want it to be so You don't want Chateau 2 by 4 right? Right. So in general, it's about 20% new wood, and it'll be French. And generally, the new portion is, like I said, it's usually those 500 liter and maybe a few um, of the traditional barrels than some of the stainless barrels. We do uh, surlies, age and stir. The stainless barrels, we stir twice a week. The wood and pungents we stir once a week then we'll stop again based on taste when we feel like it's it's gotten some mid palate density and then stop uh usually spends anywhere from eight to nine months in barrels and we uh we bottle mm-hmm. we do inoculate so we do use commercial yeast although we is that are, across your wines uh that is across our wines although we are doing sp- small experimentation with native or feral yeast with working with native yeast for the last couple years you know you can have 20 barrels and there's going to be 20 different barrels and some are sweeter mm-hmm. than others mm-hmm. and and i'm and it's really fascinating. I do think you can get really interesting um, textures, aromatics from the native yeast, but it's a little bit stressful for sure. Sure, yeah. And so we do it sort of on the edges again to kind of give us other layers. Mm-hmm. I get on the nose. I get that golden apple and that kind of lime zest mm-hmm. back behind it, and then there's 
Maybe a little cream cheese and a touch of flintiness, huh? Right. I think the, yeah, for sure. I mean, the flintiness comes, again, I think from our Sonoma side. It's much cooler there. The acidity is a little bit higher there. And like I said, the Napa side just gives you a little bit rounder, more tropical fruit, sort of that creaminess that you get. It's got great, great weight. You know, there's, there's that lushness and roundness, but it's elevated by that higher acidity. So the, the, the wood is not, I mean, it's there, but very subtle. I'll just kind of right. give it a little backbone rather it, than... It is. Again, what, what we're trying to do, John, is really make, you know, layers. So it's sort of sort of think of like a layer cake or something, you know, right? That have all these different layers of flavors and fruit components and some sort of, you know, cream or something in the middle. That's, that's sort of how we try to put our wines together. What do we have next? So we move on to our red portion of the uh, morning. Our uh, first wine is our single vineyard Mount George Merlot, and this is, I believe, the 2014 vintage. Again, very, very small production. Uh, Mount George is the Coombsville Vineyard. Is our Coombsville Vineyard, yes. So starting, obviously, 2012, um, when it, when the Appalachian became a recognized AVA, at that point in time, we start. I believe we started putting Coombsville on the label. Prior to that, it was Napa Valley. Again, when you have really great vineyards, it's really fun to do these single vineyard bottlings. And Merlot, to me, you know, obviously, Merlot. What can we say about Merlot? The it's greatest wines in the world are made from Merlot. Absolutely. Some of them. <laughs> well, absolutely. And you will not have an argument here, but um, it's really hard to convince people that. Is that is that is that is that uh, sideways effect still? It it still is. I mean, if people say it's not, they're they're being dishonest because. You know, when you go into a great retail shop and you go into a really, say, fine restaurant that has a really great list, they'll have Merlot on the list, of but they they'll have one or two. Ah. And in the past, it was, you know, there were Yeah, you many. know, well, so frankly, a, in the mid, early 90s, mid-90s, there was a lot of crap in Merlot. Oh, sure. Right. right. Yeah, <laughs> It was super trendy and kind yeah. of like... Well, There's a lot I, of crappy Pinot Noir being made right now. Well, yeah, you know? you know, and it's like any hot variety, people latch on to it, and, you know, they, they you know, they are, you know, milking the golden goose. That yes, doesn't yeah. even make sense. But, I, I, uh, get you. I get you. But, uh, I'm mixing metaphors or something. <laughs> or but, mixing uh, species, yeah. Yeah, but, um, you know, we've always made Merlot um, when we decided to make a smaller production, a little more focused Merlot. We decided to look at our vineyards where we were growing Merlot. So we were growing Merlot here in the Stags Leap District and in, and in, our, in Coombsville. And we just thought, you know what? The Coombsville fruit is so distinctive. I mean, it just has this great, I call it like a graphite, like a pencil mm -hmm. shaving with a little little bit of maybe some savory There's some sort of savory herb or spice yeah. in there, isn't there? Yeah. And it's just very, very, I would say, typical of, of the Coombsville fruit. And then there's this mid-palate density that I think really makes 
any wine that comes out of Coombe is very distinctive. I mean, it's not like tannic, it's just there's this broadness in the mid-palate. In mid it's interesting, my, my general impression of the 2014 vintages is that, from Napa wine specifically, is this is the vintage you should be drinking while you're waiting for your 13s and 15s to mature. Right. This wine probably needs a little time. Yeah, sure. I mean, you know, again, um, we're making these wines to, you know, if somebody wants to enjoy it now, you have to have take that into consideration. But at the same time, there are some folks that, you know, have the romantic notion of, of you know, they're going to have this cellar and age their wine. So we certainly want the wines to be able to reward the consumer, the, uh, the end user, so to say, to... Uh, you know, enjoy enjoy their wine if they mm -hmm. want to age it for a few years. But yeah, I mean, Merlot it's a it's a serious grape, and and it yeah no, this is absolutely delicious. I'm getting black cherry, some other mixed kind of berries, not dark, but moving to that darker end of the scale, mm -hmm. kind of like a cola note almost. Oh yeah, absolutely. Cola is actually a descriptor that we use quite a bit. Mm -hmm. to to talk about our wines and particularly the wines coming out of Coombsville. What do we have next? The next wine is our estate mm -hmm. cab. And the estate cab comes from both our Coombsville property and our Stagsley property. Uh, this one is generally a blend. Uh, we'll have a little bit of Merlot in and sometimes it may have some Cab Franc or Petit Verdot. The estate cab, again, grown, produced, and bottled. Um, we do have a bottling line here, so everything that comes in essentially never leaves the property once it comes in as grapes. Mm -hmm. And this is our largest uh, production wine, and this is a wine that you really will more or less see everywhere. This um, is a wine because people can, you know, do, you know, sometimes see it in supermarkets and things like that. that they get this assumption that we're much larger than we are. Sure. You, know, you sort of see a Silverado at, say, a Safeway or wherever. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I think you're a $200,000 yeah. bottle of production yeah. or $300,000 300, yeah. production. And, and, you know, we're really, we are smaller than, than we appear. It's kind of like, you know, the uh, in a rearview mirror, things are closer than they. Right. <laughs> um, so, you know, again, we're, we're at that about 75,000 case production and uh, you know a good a good chunk of that is the estate cab the estate cab is is probably about 26 27,000 cases so um, and then mm -hmm. another big chunk is is our Sauvignon Blanc sure which right. is again about 25,000 so, oh, so there's half your production right there yeah. or three, two thirds of your production yeah so um, which is why again you'll see our Sauvignon Blanc you know in in a lot of outlet places mm -hmm. and a lot of outlets and then same with, with the Cabernet. Well, this is steak cab. This is steak cab. On the nose, the first thing that comes to mind is finesse. Mm -hmm. It's not a knock you over the head Cabernet. It's not, it's, it's current rather than deceased. Right. Yeah, again, I mean, the idea is, you know, there's a lot of different expressions of, of fruit and again we tend we, we want to have a fresher style and 
no no knock on the folks that are making the styles that are no right those big giants have a place yeah they really do um but again i just don't think for me and and our vineyards i just don't feel it's appropriate and we're not that's not the wines that we're chasing i'm sure if we wanted to make a style like that we probably could because obviously these vineyards have very very good pedigree but again, it's just not really a style that we're looking to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I really feel like wine should be refreshing because most people, when they are drinking wine, it's generally with food, with friends. And if a wine has good acidity, it will refresh your palate so you can continue to enjoy your meal. Right. If, if your wine is big and heavy, it kind of is the meal. Right. Exactly right. <laughs> Yeah, it's a food wine rather than drinking wine. Yeah. This, again, continues to show finesse on the palate. The fruit is to the lighter spectrum of Cabernet. And there's like some Dutch cocoa and mocha kind of notes and a little bit of, little bit of flowers. Yeah. John, I think you've done this before. I've been around a <laughs> glass of wine periodically. It's neither austere nor enveloping. It's just a beautifully balanced texture. Right. You know, balance is a marketing term that's getting batted around a lot up and down I, yeah, the valley lately I mean, people, but this uh this wine truly does have balance yeah people ask me all the time what's balance and it's like i don't know it's been bandied about like you're saying it's like i don't even know anymore right it's like does it seem like everything's in place yeah right i mean yeah no one element stands out it's it's not all about the fruit it's not all about the acidity it's not all about the alcohol or minerality it all plays nicely together and that's that's balance. I agree. Terrific. Mm. Boy, that's good. Yeah, it is. <laughs> what do we have next? Good. Okay, so let's do a side-by-side okay. tasting. Um, so the next two um, are our single vineyard uh, Cabernet Sauvignons. Uh, first one is our 2015 Geo, and then we have our 2015 Solo. So the first wine um, is our Geo from from our Coombsville, it is a Cabernet, Cabernet-based. Uh, we started we started making Geo in 2012. And previous vintages have been blended with either a little bit of Cab Franc or Petit Verdot. But what's interesting about this Geo is it is 100% Cabernet. Okay. And again... It and is that just because 2015 was the right year to make 100% just, Cabernet? Yeah, it was just the year. We didn't feel like it needed oh. anything else. And then Solo comes from our Stag's Leap property, and that is always 100%. And that, um, we started making that actually in 2002. So the idea behind these two bottlings is that they're property specific. Very property specific. The best barrels that we think represent the vintage. Oh, and so that. sort of like a tete de cuvee here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The best the right. best barrels and what represents in our in our sort of hedonic uh, picture of what those vineyards are about. That's and uh, again, the 15 being a really great vintage. We, you know, on average, most of these both Geo and Solo are roughly thirteen to fourteen hundred cases. Oh, very little. So, very is it available little. on the market? It is mostly available. in the restaurant, I'd imagine. Um, it's available at both on and off premise. Okay, so, cool. yeah, you can find it. Let's just get more to that kind of plum side, but with still some acidity from the berry, huh? Right. Well, again, what we, what's fascinating to me is, is this. 
We pick our Stag's Leap vineyard generally about two weeks before we pick our Coombsville property. So when we start picking here, mm -hmm. I know in about two to three weeks we'll start be going down we're going down to Coombsville. Even though Stag's Leap is not considered a warm, quote unquote, warm. Compared to the rest of that valley, right? Yeah. So Coombsville is even a little bit cooler than that. But again, what's fascinating is the Stag's Leap vineyard holds its acidity quite well, where the Coombsville has a little bit lower acidity and a little higher pH. This has a lovely body. Those grippy tannins come forward and get you on the teeth afterwards, mm. huh? Well, again, again this, it's is, 15, this is, yeah, this is a, a baby and, and it's a big and, vintage. Right. We, we, you know, we didn't, we didn't decant these, these, um, you know, we opened the bottles, you know, uh, probably about a half hour or so before you showed up, John. So mm -hmm. you can really see, you know, what, what's going on here in the glass. And, you know, as obviously as, as time would go on, as they were sitting in the glass, they're going to open up a little bit more. Yeah. This is a wine for five to 10 years from now though. Oh, for sure. Yeah. These, these are great. Uh, let's take a look at the solo. Okay. Absolutely. So again, Solo, 100% uh, Cabernet from our Stag's Leap District uh, property. 2002 was our first vintage. And we just really feel that, you know, this is a really special vineyard. Um, the fourth planted um, for Cabernet um, in modern uh, viticulture history of the Napa Valley, planted in 1968 by uh, our previous owner gentleman named Harry C. of the C's Candy mm -hmm. um, family. And with his vineyard manager, they, they got cuttings from Livermore. It's a bit um, unknown if they got it from Concanon or Wente. It's a little, little bit confusing, mm -hmm. but they uh, did get the cuttings from the Livermore area and planted. And what was interesting about... Um, the, the cuttings that came is um, these were a little bit more drought resistant and again oh, okay. if you think yeah, about so 15 was drought year still right? yeah if you think about the valley um, so it's 30 miles long right you go from uh, south to north it gets warmer as you go north but there's also the east to west component right west you're butting butting up against the uh, Maya Camus and that you know, is influenced by the Sonoma area. It's cooler, a little bit cooler. Uh, you look at the vegetation there, right? It's a little bit more uh, oak trees and a little bit more lush. You come to the east side and you got the Vaca Mountains, right. right? It's much drier. Yeah, for sure. So we're on the east side of the valley, right? The, the dry side and the dry year. Right? Yeah, so... They were looking for a, a, a Cabernet that would do better in in a in an area that maybe was a little less um, wet, mm -hmm. and so they found this uh, you know Wente variety that that a cutting that that did really well. It's interesting. The nose of this wine is way less about the fruit as opposed to the other elements of it. Sure. It's it's there's that pencil that you talked about earlier and. I get some green olive and some nice herbaceousness. And right. The fruit's there, but it's kind of, it's, it's a little more like, it's coy. Yeah. Well, what, what I found 
with our solo is solo will sneak up on you and what i mean by that is it's a very subtle wine and it tends to be because of the a little higher acidity a little lower ph of of the bottling it just takes a little bit longer to open up where geo is a little bit more immediate but they will both reward you in, in mm-hmm. different ways the fr- fruits playing second fiddle to the other elements on the nose. On the palate, it comes right through and it's lovely. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know if I can say this on air, but it doesn't suck. No, it, <laughs> it definitely does not suck. No, this is really delicious. I think this is a, a great example of what Stag's Leap Cabernet is all yeah. about. I mean, you're, you're here in Stag's Leap, that's where it's made and that's what it should be. And it's clearly not Rutherford, it's clearly not Oakville. This right. is Stag's Leap. And right. Just a stunning wine. Thank you. Yeah, we're 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 really pleased. The fifteen vintage is just gonna, it they're just gonna blow people mind away. I mean, it's just it's amazing. They're, it's gonna be a great vintage, and you're starting to see some of the fifteens coming out now, and they're just it's amazing. I would I personally would buy as much vintage fifteen as you can afford and find. Terrific. John Emmerich, Silverado Vineyards winemaker, thanks so much for joining me on the show. It's been a pleasure to meet with you. Oh, it's been great. Thank you. Come visit us again, John, anytime. We'll do. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod.